How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 189. Ooh. Very, that's a good number. Why is that? It just is. I oh, put you oh, on the spot oh, there, oh, didn't I? I know, you did. What's he thinking? I didn't expect to have a follow-up question. Well, why is that, it a good That's number? from Ted. That's a yeah. line from Ted. That's actually one of the better lines of Ted. How you doing, Jake? Oh, I'm tired. <laughs> you know, like you said, Zeke, technology is deciding not to work for me. Yes, we do apologise for this being a little late than usual. Yeah. But yeah, still it's... in the week of, we maintain 189 weeks and counting. That is true. I mean, we're at the point now where if we miss our like Monday deadline, it doesn't even move our percentage of episodes that were late by 1%. It's, I mean, it's hey, it's we're 11 away from it being half a percent per episode late. So. There you go. A little math for everyone, a little math. But I do apologise. It is on my end, but uh, I'm still trying to get my desktop working, which I talked about last week being stuffed. Still, it's just getting worse and worse. Like, mm. to pour all this time and money into it, what can you do? But I have managed to get everything operational through the laptops. So uh, we're going to get this episode out to everyone. There you go. Because we've got to talk about Amy. Amazing yes. Amy. Not from Gone Girl, but the real, the real Amy, so to speak. Yeah. Zeke. Would you like to hear a fun fact? I would. About Amy. <laughs> about, there about are three, Amy. so I'm going there, There's not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go with so, your one. Sure, sure, I can start. Well, it's actually funny because my fact is to do with something that I was actually going to... Well, I still will ask you about in our main discussion of the film, but it's something mm. I sort of want to get your take on. But it is to do with the fact that Amy Winehouse's immediate family, including and specifically her parents... Uh, well, the main source for the intimate home video archival footage of Amy, all the stuff sort of before the uh, the awards show performance TMZ televised stuff, where a lot of the film starts with that home footage, uh, which I find ironic because, first off, the reason they gave it was because it was the director of Senna, Cena, uh, 2010 documentary, I believe, but they, they liked the work of the director. We're like, okay, here you go. We're going to give you access. And they ended up... Uh, criticizing the film or disowning the film, calling its portrayal of their daughter preposterous, um, which is interesting. I'll get your take on that specifically later in the show. But Zeke, in the meantime, do you have a fun fact for me? Yeah, yes. Yeah, so this is the first documentary Amy. film, obviously tying into A24's birthday last week. Ah, uh, very good. Distributed by A24 to be nominated for an Oscar, in which Mitch Winehouse... Yeah. Said he still hated the film despite its nomination. Oh, well, there you go. I'm pretty sure it won. I think it won Best Documentary. There you go. Yeah. There you go. We'll wonder at work and go through if uh, we can go through whether it should have. Yeah. Or not. Yeah. Well, but Jake, mm-hmm. I know that this film could be on the poster behind me. It could be. Yeah. It's from 2015. Now, obviously, we go, is it on the poster behind me? Let's say yes. And, okay. And would it be on... My poster. My 1100 films. Right, right. Well, no. no. (laughs) Okay, well, you might be happy then because the film is not on the 1100 poster behind you. Um, I probably would put it, at least on my personal list, there's some things this documentary does that, granted, I've seen other videos and films and documentaries do this style of documentary. I think there's something very specific about the editing in this documentary that I would love to, to get into more throughout the episode. And I think that alone, at least for me, in terms of just appreciation on that sense, I probably would put it on my personal list. Mm-hmm. Is it an essential film to watch? I don't know. Potentially. 
Mm. A lot of people were very emotionally wound up by this film. But uh, like I said, my my, my uh, thinking is not to do with the the subject matter or the story of Amy no, Winehouse, but more enough. so the technical side of the, the documentary. But that's okay. I will say, speaking of documentaries, I did mention one last week about... Um, we talked a bit about the film rating system. Yes. Uh, particularly in Australia and America. And I talked about a doco I saw on YouTube. It's still on there in like several parts. But the film is called This Film Is Not Yet Rated. It's a 2006 documentary. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to give that a shout out because we did talk about it last week. But um, can't say that I rewatched it in this past week. I watched other stuff in this past week. But Zeke, did you watch any stuff in yeah, this I past week? a lot. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, <laughs> let's see. One, two, three. This is the first. This would have been the first week that I'd watched more films than days in the week. Oh. God knows how long. I ended up watching one, two, three. Yeah, eight things, including the film of the week. Jeez. So. All documentaries. Oh, very good. So, keeping in theme. To keeping with theme. I like it. Um, and not really a single one with negative um, thoughts and feelings. So I'll, mm. I'll kick off with the ones that... Obviously, um, I've talked a little bit about the untold Netflix sort of collection. Yes. Now, yeah. Volume 1 released, I believe, a year ago. We talked a few, a couple of them. God, was that how long ago that was? It'd be at least a year, maybe two years ago. Um in which that featured the the one about Caitlyn Jenner and yep. Breaking Point and uh, Crime and, and Penalties, which was a big fan of mine, the the one about the uh, local ice hockey team that mm. was a front for the mafia. I thought that was a really cool... <laughs> and they've yeah, recently dropped... it was so wild. Yeah. yeah, so wild, so entertaining. And I have to admit, I, mean, I did talk a bit about Woodstock 99, that, that docu-series that was sort of a, basically just an elongated documentary. And sure. And how much I really dig what Netflix... I think Netflix does documentaries really well. I mm. think that that's really their, their, their real niche, that they, they definitely hit more than miss. Um, I know some people feel like sometimes they can be a bit samey, but I actually reckon the exploration into the, the stories in particular, and I mean, if we look at any, you know, Fire came from Netflix mm. and Tiger King came from Netflix and... Um, this Untold series, the first volume overall, I was very positive on. It, yeah. was, it was either seldom to that's really, really entertaining and really good. And Volume 2 dropped in the last couple mm, of weeks, okay. in which we, uh, over the course of a month, this is the other thing where it gets this weird Netflix thing where they're all part of the same uh, documentary collective. But they're dropped as like feature films? Is that yeah, it? well, they're mostly feature documentaries. One of them actually had two parts this time. Oh, interesting. And. They're dropped weekly rather than like what we've been saying, yeah. where Netflix has this weird either drop it all at once or does weeklies for some yeah. collections. Well, that's the weird thing because the, the, the television, the serialized stuff, they just drop in one hit, but then feature films that are tangentially connected, they drop in a weekly. It's weird. Yeah, so they've, they've done that again. So I, at this point, um, two of the four had been released. Mm. So. That was the rise and fall of And One and the girlfriend that who didn't exist, and that that's that second one I just mentioned is the one with two really, parts. I, yeah, wow. Um, uh, and I, I, I can used to relate to that a lot. The girlfriend <laughs> who didn't exist, and this is well, basically, <laughs> it was about in the that sort of, and we talked a little bit about the most hated man on the internet a couple of weeks ago and how we yep. watched that series and how we weren't really at the time of the early twenty tens. Um, our 
internet IQ was not at its its peak. So we only really started to discover the the dark corners of the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this documentary has a similar sort of uh, ignorance, underlying ignorance, and and stuff about a emerging college player whose career was sort of spiraled out of control because uh, his girlfriend died, but his girlfriend didn't exist. And yeah, and it does have this, and it does have a good hook, which these these documentaries do have a really good hook. And sure. to be honest, it was fine. Didn't need to be two parts. It was just over. T- I was only two hours ten, but it probably could have been a good hour forty. You know, it was. Okay. It's like one of those things where you're just like, oh, yeah, this was good, but it wasn't like the, like that engaging. Mm. Um, not as excessively engaging. Um, and then it just sort of went down the, the route she thought it would, how the media can destroy a sportsman's career. And these are, I have to say, all these untold series are sports documentaries, but they're like surface level sports documentaries with underlying drama and crime and, and all of these right. things. They they happen to sports athletes or codes, is their, their common sort of the through line, yeah. Okay. Um, the next one, the, the Rise and Fall of AM1. A similar feeling. It was a. It was more of the birth of a um, baby company trying to go up against Nike in mm. the end of the nineties, and sort of how they they targeted uh, street culture and 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 capitalized on that period. And for a time, they were they were matching and actually outdoing Nike. But of course, it was that whole thing where big corporate eventually just squashed the competition. It sort of mm. followed this. Uh, this journey of, of three university dropout businessmen sort of creating this brand and the rise and the fall and, and getting these these street athletes who never played in the NBA to to represent their their code and this idea of street ball and it was quite it was interesting because it's like one of those it's like everything it introduced you to a different aspect of life yeah. And, Sort of goes the way you think it will, obviously, as they start to hit the road and get successful. What are these these players that weren't in the NBA and NBA code, these sports athletes who weren't getting recognized for it? What happens? They become rock stars and mm. they have that rock star mentality and that whole concept that they weren't getting paid enough and it leads to this very quick disintegration of, of and one and eventually I think Nike buys them out. So uh, there you go. Um yeah. all good stories end conglomerization good, good but I'll, I'll throw it back to you i'll throw it back to you yeah well you know i'll tie that off uh, when you talk about code yes there's a code to these things i'm going to talk a little bit about the pirates code because cool. i rewatched first time in 16 years like, i haven't watched these films since mm-hmm. i was nine years old pirates of the caribbean one and two bangers i watched yeah. pirates of the caribbean one like a month ago oh it's great. Wow. there you go no it's great it's really great i, I think i prefer it to the second one and I'll I'll sort of clarify my stance in this because I just so I wasn't like a big like pirates guy. I was, like, I was very uh, that and like westerns. I was just very not the same as everyone around me in that regard. Was, even Assassin's Creed Black Flag. I was like, yeah, okay. Oh. I know, I know. <laughs> You're definitely more normal than I'm in that <laughs> in that God. scenario. That doesn't make much sense too because you liked Uncharted. Yeah, too. but I think Uncharted is like has that contemporary twist where it's like you're yeah. you're main yeah. characters are contemporary characters and there's that dynamic mm. so so i get that but like this is like authentic like, all right we're going back into like what the 1700s these are characters from the 1700s and it's it the, i think the plotting and the story mm. 
I think it's a little more dense than people give it credit for, especially as you're watching it, because these are big two and a half hour films, and especially the first one, like it's a lot easier to follow in terms of the, the character dynamics. But as a nine year old, especially one who's not really interested in pirates and whatnot, and just like it kind of, I watched it and and gloated over, it. and I I watched the two to ah. prep for um, the third one, which came out mm-hmm. at the time, but I just I never caught it. I um also you, mm. have you watched it now the third one? No, I've so just it's... seen the first two. Ugh. I'll rewatch the first two. Man, it's one of those things that, especially particularly that first one, it's I reckon it's the most purpose driven script mm. a blockbuster, a contemporary blockbuster has ever had. Like it's fantastic. Every script. single line is important. Right. Like even the ones that are played for comedic effect mm. are deliberate and considered and thought through. And especially when you watch that first act, it's seamless the way it flows. And it's like, oh, it's just such an efficient... I remember watching it and being like, wow, I love every aspect of this because of how... I think the the Captain Jack Sparrow character introduction is one of the best character introductions. Oh, where it cuts to that wide of him and the on the, <laughs> on the ship, and then boat. he just jumps <laughs> on the ship. Yeah, it, and even just like him going into the dock and yeah. just seamlessly walking onto the dock. Yeah. Like what a like what a perfect balance of cool, ska- like scallywag, like to capture scallywag without calling him a scallywag. It's yeah, just yeah. fantastic. Or even just like his sort of appreciative nod to the the skeletons that are dangling there yeah. as well. <laughs> it's it's such a and it's such a um yeah, I, it's such a well casted film. It's, it's yeah. Got... I didn't realize this because he was nominated best actor for that performance in the first one. That should I was shocked by that. I mean, in a pleasantly shocked way. Yeah, it's just this is such a you know oh this is based on a theme park and I read a letterbox review that's like this is like the MCU equivalent of the mid '40s but way 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 better like just better constructed characters yeah. screenplay plotting. All those elements, I mean, and they, just like they, the period filmmaking is fantastic, and they and they take it too far because obviously four and five are widely panned, and they sure, should yeah. be because they suck. But it's like those first three, they're great, they're epics. Yeah, like and this is that thing where it's like always about going to the well too much, which has been a consistent problem in the twenty first century with the blockbuster films. Mm. Um, second one's great, Bill Nye's great. Yeah, yeah, no, and um, um, obviously David Jones is like fantastic. Yeah sort of effects and, and the performance and everything's great. I think the thing with the second one, and like I said, I, I think I prefer the first one because it just feels more like that solid film. Family, uh, family-friendly, fun, tight adventure, even though it's two and a half hours, it's a very tight script, like you said, very methodically um, put together. And I love mm. the dynamic as well of like the villain clan or the pirates whose goal is to rid themselves of a curse that will kill them. So it's almost like their ultimate goal is aligned with the heroes that also don't want them to kidnap William Turner mm. as a sacrifice. And I was like, that's a really cool dynamic in terms of a villain yeah. and hero group. And that kind of is very Uncharted-esque of you have your very core split down the even here are your heroes and here are your villains, very defined roles in the story. But but that little twist to the yeah. goals, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. But with the second one, it was a couple of things because it, I de- it definitely gets a little sillier, you know, with the sword fighting on the barrel, or not the barrel, but like the the giant wheel, and they're sort of rolling in the big uh, net as they're trying to get to the other side of the cliff. I didn't mind any of that. Like it's more silly, but it's like it's still fun. Like it's yeah, still the, fun. Yeah, the cannibal film. tribe. And, sure. Yeah, and, yeah. Little Indiana Jones esque in that. <laughs> in that sense. Yeah, it definitely has that that fantastical nature of yeah. of Indiana Jones and and 
that's a really good uh, segue into something I watched. Oh, well, um, bef- before I let you do that, yes. I'll just say, I think the, the main thing that I took away from the second one, not so much the silliness, but that it really started to feel like, you know, Harry Potter, Narnia, not that Spider-Man Chronicles is a big franchise, but but that, Lord of the Rings, like these big mid-orties franchises, fantasy franchises that kind of have that dark twist in them where they're still child-friendly, but sort of a lot of the scenes take place at night, in the rain, with scary villains and... It kind of fit that um, that group of fantasy films that came out around mm-hmm. that time, and I think for me, compared to something like Harry Potter, you needed to grow up with it to truly appreciate it. Yeah, I can appreciate the filmmaking, but in terms of the love for the characters and the story and the settings, I kind of needed to be into it at that age. I feel like I'm kind of too old to truly appreciate it at this point. So mm. not a fault of the film, probably just more of a fault of me catching it when I did. Yeah. But um, I wanted to get that in there before we... Third film's ec- epic. I can't wait to hear your take on it. I, I want to watch the third one. I do owe it to myself to finish it now. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, speaking of blockbusters, perfect, mm. perfect opportunity. So one of the yeah. documentaries simply titled Spielberg. Ooh. And this was uh, a documentary that came out in 20... So 2016? Let me check. Okay. Around the time he did the post? What's that? Around the 20, time he did the post. 2017. So this was, uh, I assume, shot around 1615 because there's uh, oh, okay, on-set sure. footage of Bridge of Spies. Ah. So just before the post. Um, and basically it's just a um, biographical documentary on Spielberg, which, mm. to be honest, it's sort of... We've talked a little bit about uh, why we think Spielberg is a, such a poignant director and such an important mm. director. And I'm a very big pro-him um, right. I think he's um, inspirational in his evolution and tackling different genres and, sure. and grow, even grow like challenge constantly as an artist challenging himself to make that next big film. And we've talked about how even when we on our West Side Story episode, how mm. it's like, well, we can now essentially in almost in every decade of this man's career point out one film that's at least good. Um, sure, yeah. Which not every director sits in that category. Not well, every director does that over the course of 50 years. No, well, a lot of the debate that we've had over the years is which decade is his best. And for a track record like his, it's like, you can't believe you're having that argument across like three different decades. At least three. I yeah. mean, you could argue even there'd be a fourth in there. He'd probably put the aughts in there too, because some yeah. people like the aughts too. So Catch it, me if you can, yeah. Yeah, so it's, and it, it's one of those things. So it's like he's... You know, and this is just simply following his life, and mm. it's a good, it's a good two-hour, twenty-minute doco, and it and it follows from the moment he was like the the movie that made him want to make movies or mm. believe that he couldn't make movies because it was just so good was Lawrence of Arabia, and it's just like yeah, so you sit yeah. there and go, well, I really need to watch Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> that man, so and just little things like the fact that he was constantly making movies and how he used to get around. Like he's like a, he was a super eight kid basically. Yeah, of course. Um, and it just followed his journey, but it it went through each decade and how by the oh, time he got cool. to the nineties. People just sort of branded him as this blockbuster director. Hey, honestly, at the time, would be the equivalent of of the Russo brothers. This, mm. this direct, this all they can do are these big movies. Yeah, they they can't do something softer and grounded. And then, boom, Color Purple comes in. Oh, we're starting to see a little bit more. And then, takes it that next step. And we got Schindler's List, yeah. where it's like apparently there's no cranes. It's all handheld. He's holding the camera, doing it. Oh, like, that's sick. 
And you just sort of, and it's like, you know, obviously as a Jewish man mm-hmm. making Schindler's List, that's huge. And it's like, there's that context there. And then on top of that, you go from that to Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. And there's some really good piece to cameras. Like in almost all of the films discussed, we get a piece to camera from the star or one of the stars. Oh, that's cool. So we get Dreyfus from Jaws and we get Harrison Ford from Indiana Jones. We get Tom Hanks for for saving private Ryan Liam mm-hmm. Neeson for Schindler's List. So it's like these just these little bits that just keep adding to it. We get a bit of Scorsese talking about him, nice. talking about this super a bit of George Lucas, like the fact that there was this super group of like friends like Spielberg, Lucas, Scorsese, uh, De Palma and and Coppola and you're just like, mm. "Wow." What to yeah. be at that table? A- <laughs> <laughs> it's a good list of friends right there. They have, and, it, and it's just fascinating to me because it's and even just like the conversations they're having with each other, like the fact that Spielberg was the only one who liked the original Star Wars like screening, and everyone else That's made fun of Lucas, that, yeah. and, and and Spielberg was the only one to see it, mm. and and just all these crazy things, and and it, truly, you just sit there, and it was a good documentary, very well made. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm talking a lot about the the subjects of the documentary and not the person that actually put it together, which was uh, Susan Lacey, and that's a big that's a big undertaking, I reckon, to do a documentary like that. Sure, and it's it's very um, biograph like it's very biographical. A lot of Spielberg talking about his life and talking about like influences and such, and talks a little bit about all of the daddy issues in his movies too. And, and there's just little things in there. You're yeah. just like, wow. Where's the a really, dad in is a really, I mean, it's a really good auteur, <laughs> like, documentary. You know, if you're, yep. you're talking about Spielberg as an auteur, which he is. Yeah, of course. Um, He's earned that position, I reckon, at this point. I think so, too. It's like, okay, well, let's look at the evolution of this, this director. And over five, nearly, what, five decades at least... Um, six unofficially mm. it's sort of like wow it's like that's hectic think about it's it it's a big career good documentary on binge ah oh, binge there you go yeah. you're still rocking the old binge yes I got two free months well done are you <laughs> going to use it to do the, the new Game of Thrones thing or is that going to pass and I just I can't bring my we talked we, I know we talked about it last week yeah. I still haven't watched it fair enough and apparently it's really good I've heard so. it's intense there's an intense uh, scene in there it's going to be weird. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be, uh, as an emerging high school teacher, it's going to be weird to go back into a high school knowing that when I fin- it was finishing high school, yeah, Game of Thrones was the, finishing, and now yeah. we're going back in and we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones related stuff again. But now, now you're uh, you're on the other side of the <laughs> other fence side there. Of the fence, other yes. side of the desk, maybe. Yeah, I'm not that dumb. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll throw it back to you. Have you got anything else? Yeah. Oh, not really. It was really just those two films. And I did... I, I think our last last uh, well last week's podcast I talked about starting season three of the boys, so I'm all done now with the boys and it's good, eh? It's good stuff, and like I talked about being excited for Hero Guys, and I was and I very much enjoyed Hero Guys, and for all the reasons that it it sort of touts in in the visual horrors of mm. <laughs> what you're doing. I'm not just talking about like the sexual stuff, but the the more violent stuff that that starts to meld with the sexual stuff, and just like that imagery of all those absolutely burnt bodies and it's just completely messed but i will and and with that episode as well i was actually surprised not only does it do that but i think it actually moves the narrative forward more than i think any other episode in the series 
Like, I, I don't think anyone major, like, dies, for example. It's a, it's a big Crossroads episode. It's a huge Crossroads. Well, you have a huge um development for Annie or for, for Starlight. You get the big moment where, like, you know, four of our main characters are having this, you know, fisticuffs fight. If you're, you never predicted, because I, I haven't read the comics or anything. I didn't know anything about, like, the... Um, the 24-hour V stuff that mm. they were going to introduce in that third season, and I thought that was all very clever. And mm. apparently, in the comics, that was there from day one. The the soldier boy dynamic. The... That's yeah, no, that's that's awesome. Or even just some of the twists. I was like, yeah, that's really clever. There's a lot of stakes. There's a massive like lot of stakes in that season, and you really start to see, wow, this is a this is a really good show that mm. doesn't overstay its welcome ever. Like, to have a, a nice, tight eight episodes, too. Well, you can tell, like, just the budget and the VFX. And the VFX are fantastic. Yeah. I was watching some Corridor Crew stuff, because they had the guy on there, the, the VFX supervisor on, and it's like, yeah, no, this is just fantastic. For, for what TV's doing these days, in terms of the, mm-hmm. the VFX budget. So, yeah, they're clearly... They're only doing eight episodes, but like you said, they're not overstaying their welcome. The seasons aren't too meaty, um, except for all the meat that explodes, of course. <laughs> But I will say, watching the... I was probably a little underwhelmed with the season three finale. A few too many fake-outs, if you know what I mean. Yeah, okay. I'm just like, okay, can we start to get... I was excited. I was like, oh, wow, this happened, this happened, this happened. And, oh, no, but it didn't really. Those those elements are still going to I think it was very... What it makes me feel like that one. And it'll be interesting to see how many more seasons of The Boys there are. If there's only going to be a fourth and final season. Because it feels... I feel like we could push to five and that'd be enough. I feel like there's still lots you can do with the show. Yeah, I I think we're getting to a fever pitch simply because... Probably five. And Mm. I say five because of events that happen and, and the closing montage of three. It sort of makes it out like, okay... Four's going to have something different, and then we're going to return to some things. Sure. In five, and five is going to be the the, the last right. There needs mm. to be a major death in four, which there probably will be. Um, oh, I bloody hope so. Had um, a few opportunities in season three, and I don't think they jumped it. I think it's. I think we're going to see it in four. Right. Um, this felt like a season three. I mean, this honestly, it felt like a Breaking Bad season three, in the sense, right, in the same okay. sort of feeling where people get hurt. Like, like I mean, it's like you could argue one character getting hurt is the equivalent of Hank getting shot, and and being crippled mm. for a significant period of the of the season. Right, and I, I think that they line up pretty well. And and I mean, I from what I recall, season three is pretty inconsequ- inconsequential, isn't it? The season three of Breaking Bad. It's not like a. It's not a prolific season. Never, never lived in my head at all. Okay, I might well, be talking. I might be talking to the wrong person. Who's no, be well, like, less. I think for season, and it's funny because me and Kirsty were almost up to season three and our rewatch. It's three when Jesse's girlfriend dies. Is that no? That's uh, end of season two. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Season two is just phenomenal. By the way, rewatching Breaking Bad. Yeah, well, I'm. Like, I'm. I, that's the only season I feel like I get a bit of a dry spell in my head. Right. Is three. Okay, well, it, it, I feel like it I feel introduces... Like Gus builds up steam. Well, it introduces a lot of those things where it's like you have Sol, Gus, and Mike are all introduced in Season 2, but you don't really know how big of a play, the play of the show they're going to be involved yeah. in by Season 3. Where it's but, like, oh, Mike's a regular. Oh, Gus is a regular. Oh, now they've got the Super Lab. So I think there's oh, a lot of those okay. elements introduced in Season 3. I honestly might need to revisit 3. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, Season 3 is great as well. I think... 
But then the thing is, season three ends in such a definitive way with what Jesse does. Um, the first time he does uh, that, yeah. that by that point, it's like, okay, well, season four can really truly be only one thing, and that's that's Walt v. Gus, and it's just an entire season of that um, you know battle, True. so to speak, between those two and all the chess pieces they move. So while with with the boys, it's a little like. Season two ends on a note where there's this uh, there's this lingering threat, but otherwise it's peacetime, and I kind of like that. I like season three starting as peacetime, and that uh, there's sort of this agreement between all the characters of like, okay, we're not going to quite jump at each other yet, but then that moment's going to happen in season three, mm-hmm. and season three ends in a way where it's like, okay, well, the, the, there's just like anger and fury mm-hmm. across all sides here, but that being said, I just I don't I don't know where it's going to go. So look, I'm. I say I was un- underwhelmed. I'm still very excited about where it's going. Yeah. Um. Obviously, you got Negan now in the show. <laughs> They've yeah, cast him. Yeah. Um. But yeah, like um, I'm excited for that. And they started shooting it like a week ago, I think. There we go. So it's com- It's coming. It's happening. Exciting times. Well, the only other things I caught in the last week, um, I caught a couple of Australian-related docos. I'll start mm-hmm. with. The one that's got nothing to do with musicians and then move into the one that does have to do with musicians. Oh, okay. So we move a little closer to our film of the week. <laughs> I actually watched a West Australian documentary um, currently sitting on Prime, so in boys' territory. Oh, very nice. Um, Hotel Coolgardi, which oh. is a, an intriguing doco from a, from a couple of years ago about two Finnish uh, backpackers who are doing their... In Australia, if you're on a travel visa, you have to do a certain amount of rural work. Mm. Uh, you normally base a lot of people base normally on farms and and such, and but these girls are electing to uh, do obviously been put on. They've been stationed at a rural bar in the middle of Western Australia, mm. Coolgardie, which is I think roughly an hour or two hours out of Kalgoorlie. Okay, so real middle of the nowhere. And it's sort of funny because obviously my partner was away in Kalgoorlie in the last week and I don't know, I just thought, oh, watch this documentary. And then it was sort of basically this documentarian um, was given camera access to basically follow these girls in their three-month stay Mm. at this rural place. And basically pretty much everyone agrees to be on camera and there's no, very little blurring of the faces. Like it's unashamedly um, open. And pretty much introduce essentially what you would assume. Like, I mean, Jake, we're both West Australians. That is we true. Both, we are both aware of, of how much vast desert we've got. And we're aware of Australia's drinking culture. And put that all together. and To one big and, pot. You know, it's basically <laughs> what you get. But what's really interesting is it was a real cross-section of sort of obviously the alcoholism of a lot of rural-based Australians who don't have a lot going on and a little bit of, it was a bit of a, mi- a microcosm, uh, microcosmic look at what it's like to be like like one of these foreign backpackers who gets mm. put out here. So obviously we look at their sort of feelings and perceptions and follow their journey. And then on top of that, we're also looking at what it's like for these people that are either stationed out here or left out here and and just just the utter grot. Is <laughs> grot only, is a great word to describe all those things you just grot. described. <laughs> and it's just an hour and 20 minutes of just, oh, no. <laughs> um, 
I don't know. You just sort of watch it and you're just sort of like, well, I, I kind of suspected, but it's one thing to suspect. It's another thing to see it play out. Sure. And just the sheer primordial animalistic nature of what it is out there. And I think I talked about it with, with Wake and Fright, uh, a 1970s Australian film that sort of tries to encapsulate the same thing, but it's like beer is basically water out there and the culture is what you can only say is back another 40 years. And by accounts of, of my partner going to Kalgoorlie for the weekend, I'm, I'm not far off. Okay. Um, (laughs) Still at play. Yeah, I just think it's a it's just a, a more yeah, primordial state of mind, I guess, and a bit more but how lonely so many people are mis- and, mm-hmm. and and just lost out there is is truly fascinating. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I watched uh, a couple of music documentaries before we move into the film of the week, which uh one of them was to do with an Australian artist, so Paul Kelly Stories of me, um, Paul Kelly. Yeah, no, you know Paul Kelly's a, a household name here in, mm. in Australia, and that was a very interesting musical documentary. Another, once again, very biographical based, like the one we're going to be talking about, um, and sort of explored the, the the songwriter elements. And I mean, I'm a big Paul Kelly fan, so listening sure. to Paul Kelly songs was not a, a difficult thing for an hour. It was interesting exploring his life and sort of the constant reincarnations and and the Paul Kelly we kind of know now didn't really come until the end of the like the end of the 80s really mid to late 80s rather than late 70s early 80s so that was it was quite interesting very traditional it was mm. some really good editing cuts actually between them in the studio and them out on the stage i thought there was some like seamless cuts sometimes okay which is great um Good use placing lyrics. They put a great emphasis on his ability as a lyric, like a lyricist, mm. to um, you know place those up on to show how poignant and also how flexible and malleable his lyrics are to a vast array of perceptions, which I find really interesting too. Right. And Just how interpretable they are. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, and that was really cool. The other one, which uh, was definitely the documentary of the week for me in this... Is this sort of a collection of binge and Netflix stockos you're, you're on? Yeah, so that Stories of Me one was... Uh, on Prime. On that Prime. was Prime. Yes. And the one I'm about to talk about was Stan. Oh, okay. So, oh, oh, no, the, the Paul, Kelly, Paul Kelly one was Stan too, yeah. So, oh, there you go. Yeah, I went on a documentary tear. There you go. Um, to finish up, it was... Uh, and the one that I probably enjoyed the most this week, not to spoil the, the film of the week, but um, th- I think this one actually either got nominated or won Best Documentary in 2012. And this oh, was wow. a South African documentary hmm. called Searching for the Sh- uh, Sugar Man. Which you might oh, have heard, heard that title. Yeah. yeah. And that's that follows the story of, of this artist called Rodriguez. And in Africa, South Africa... This artist was huge, and he had two albums released in 70 and 71, and mm. this guy was huge, and, and particularly some of his songs were re- so resonant and politically powerful in the apartheid that occurred in the 90s, mm. um, and like there were songs banned by the, the militant government at the time that couldn't be played, and this guy was huge, and everyone in South Africa thought he was dead. Oh, okay. Meanwhile, hard cut to... The documentary follows this... Follows it in a an investigatory sense, even though mm. it's historically based. This documentary. So, these are guys who are talking about an event that occurred in the nineties. Sure. Uh, in twenty twelve, when this documentary set, 
but they're they're doing it. They're unfolding it in the edit in the edit, mm. like it's the investigation. So everyone thought he killed himself. Yeah, like he and like in these like horrifically symbolic ways. Like one night he set himself on fire. <laughs> like legit. Oh my goodness. This is a common belief in South yeah. Africa at the time in the nineties, and they find out he's alive oh and he's God. in Detroit. <laughs> and that's all good things end up. And. The funniest thing is those records, the reason they were the last records is because they made no impact in America. They didn't sell at all. Sure. So he just stopped being a musician. He's just a labourer. And the whole story was about getting this guy who was huge in Africa. Like, he sold nearly a million copies in South Africa, but didn't even know he had sold a million copies. Oh, my God. Because he never saw the money, because that was the other. So they, they addressed that part. And so, and he has this mystique and this aura about him when he was, honestly, he's just so cool. Yeah. Like by the time you get to the, the tipping point of the documentary, the end of the second to the third act, and you finally meet Rodriguez. He's living in this little, this little bungalow he's been living in for 40 years. And he's just this chill hippie dude. This is like a weird retelling of Apocalypse Now. It was fascinating. <laughs> and it was. And then this is the thing. So then he goes oh, to perform good. five shows in South Africa, yeah. all sell out with like tw- like six thousand people each at each show. Yeah, and he just picks up, and he doesn't even have a band. Like he has, it gets the backing band that like idolized him <laughs> to just play because he just asked them, and he just seamlessly snaps into it. Oh my god! And the funniest thing is, so apparently he would tour. He would tour only to like occasionally to Africa over the, the next fifteen years, and he'd give most of his money away to his family and friends. Because he just liked his life as a labourer, yeah. and he would just do—he was just doing it as a labour of love to these people that were his fans, like just this utterly cool person, an utterly humble person that was not inflicted by, by fame, as mm. we're gonna we're gonna discuss. And it just ended up the way it, and it integrates things like archival footage and and some really good, really good piece to cameras from genuine like good mix, a great like South African scenery and. And then some nice like animations in there too, and it just was a mix of everything. And it and the music, oh, mm. the music was just like, and they put that emphasis on lyrics again. Like, yeah, this guy was like this really good like lyricist. Like he's the way he wrote his lyrics, and then you like they really put an emphasis on you to listen to the lyrics. You're like, wow, this guy was really good. Like, mm. how did this miss? Like, how did this not hit? Especially you know, seventy seventy one. Like we're still in that era of powerful strong politically moving lyrics mm. yet then halfway around the world it does shape a political movement sure. it's just 20 years after the fact and and something he didn't even know about so a truly remarkable story about yeah. how it, although we think the inf- especially you know even in the 90s how little how not interconnected the world was mm. Even though we think, oh, Beatles mania, like, and they start the documentary with like how powerful the Beatles were. Sure. And yeah, oh no, that's another documentary I watched. Oh my god, <laughs> no blaring Zeke. Um, but but it's a good point of like the 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 length, not the length, but like the time that it took for that to translate halfway across the world. When now you have your social media and everything's so interconnected, and, and yet everything gets lost in translation. Mm. Like you telling me now. We, we we would have essentially like we're not closer to finding the next Bob Dylan sure. because we're more interconnected. In fact, we're probably further away mm. because there's so much noise now that the next Bob Dylan will never be found. Probably no. And well, if the, so, the, the yeah. people in charge of who becomes famous probably don't want Bob Dylan. 
They no. want they want whoever makes the most amount of money, which is like, uh, I mean, who? We, I mean, I know Taylor Swift just announced a new album Ed Sheeran. recently, Ed Sheeran. But it's like, I'm not discounting them as as artists or musicians, but I'm just saying like, you need there are certain people in charge of who makes what and who becomes famous. Absolutely. And unfortunately, that's not what people are looking for anymore. Mm-hmm. Those people, I should say. And that is all I watched in the last one. Oh, it's just that. Yeah. Jeez, sick. We're Can't gonna, wait till next week. I'm gonna have to pepper absolutely nothing. <laughs> I'm gonna have to pepper this podcast with more content because it just you just got through that so quickly. <laughs> you you got to watch more stuff. <laughs> well, it's time for us. Unless you have career updates, Do you have any career updates? Um, no, I'll save it because I've been doing some shot listing work, which is being exciting. So I'll save it when it's like kind of done, which I don't know could be a couple of weeks away still. Mm. Slow going, but we we'll have exciting. to check the weather forecast in a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> that's it yeah how much is it raining oh goodness me then it's time for us to move into our film of the week by Jake what are we watching this week in the show Zeke we're watching Amy I a troubled my odds are stacked I go back to black and the Grammy goes to Amy Winehouse Nothing can prepare you for that level of success. She's quite shy. Amy, give us a smile. <laughs> the world wanted a piece of her and took it. Suddenly it was cool to crack jokes about a bulimic's appearance or her drug addictions. She said if I could give it back, just to walk down that street, I would. had such an emotional relationship to music. I'm not a girl trying to be anything other than a musician. A documentary on the life of Amy Winehouse, the immensely talented yet doomed songstress there's an extra bit but i'm not going to repeat it jake it no says something about following her from a teen years but already showing her singing abilities but you would assume most teenagers do have singing abilities if they everyone is a singing to... ability but that... <laughs> <laughs> that, that might be the best quote of the year oh. right everyone has a singing ability as <laughs> a singing ability that's true I wish we could go through that. Maybe that should be our next category at our <laughs> end of year awards. Best one-liner from one of us. Oh, good. Um, I'll write it down. Jack Bett would take it. It would be the inaugural Jack Bett award for his one-liner. Yeah, that's true, on Blue yeah. We, oh. we went so many seasons without a Jack Bett quote, so it actually, like, we can spread the love between different people. It'll happen. You wait for his return. It'll be a 100 episodes in the making. It'll yeah, happen. I like it. Yeah. I like it. But... Yeah, look, I mean, it's like one of those things. I, I get what they're saying. Like, it, it, we were talking about the archival footage and how much access sure. there was. And I don't know. I'm just, with this documentary, it it sort of echoes sort of what you would expect from um, the tragic death of a young, uh, a young um, talent. Mm. I, mean, I think she dies at, what, 26, 27, right? Yeah, I think so 20, I had to look it 27. up, 27. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, that's the big... 
um, musician death age, isn't it? There's a whole mm. thing about... In 2011. Um, it might have actually been August. Let me confirm that. It might have actually been August when she passed away, which means we just barely made the cut on the anniversary. 11-year anniversary of her death. Mm. Not that that's something we should be overly celebrating. We should be celebrating her life, Zeke. No. I, like I, the documentary does. I, and I think it's a, it's a truly interesting tale because it, it, it feels like it's the... She died in July. My apologies. Um, it feels like it's the... Sort of the look at, uh, at basically how you have these sort of one-in-a-generation talents and how how poorly managed from a familiar platonic managerial point of view because mm. i feel like at every point you know though the depiction of of mitch winehouse is quite poor in the documentary sure i think collectively the documentary is not just out to take a shot at the family it's it's it is taking a shot at sort of friends accountability and I, I do think to an extent a, a boyfriend mm. accountability and managerial accountability because there's a lot of people pointing fingers sure and we obviously have to talk about the obfuscation of um visuals to this to mm. this documentary it's it's purely archival yeah well that was that was my big takeaway and like i said i've i've it's not like I've never seen this done before, but I love that it, it almost felt like a radio play that the, the the visuals were sort of pieced together after the fact and that there are no, you know, um, pieces to camera, as you mentioned earlier. There's no mm. voice of God. There's none of that. And it's like part of it, I mean, it, it does many, many things. Part of it, it shows the transition of her as, you know, as a, as a young child with the home video and how that slowly turns into something that she loses control of, which is a public uh image mm-hmm. but then it also sort of has this weird it, it's cutting the barriers of objectivity in the sense that like you said there's a lot of finger pointing but we're, we're hearing primary sources it's mm-hmm. purely primary there's no narrator there's no you know the director doesn't come in and say i think this yeah. it's all very much just audio clips of these people not speaking purely in context to this documentary I mean, to be fair, you could argue that it's all out of context because we don't know where a lot of those came from. Well, yeah, because we don't know what the, what questions were asked to prompt sure. those responses. Mm. And there is that point there. I think it takes out the uh, the e- empathetic side that mm. comes with a visual depiction of someone. So, And by, by saying that, I mean when we look at someone mm. who's being interviewed on camera where we may, you know, we're listening to what they're saying, but we're looking at their body language, we're mm. looking at their facial um, responses to questions, we're, we're, we're looking at if they're getting upset, how are they getting upset, is it is it forced, is it contrived, mm. is it is it sincere? Like, these, these thoughts all run through our head. And I think by removing that element and just getting just the voices... We're forced to obviously fill in the blanks and we're hearing one thing and we're seeing the footage say another thing or we're seeing the footage support what that person's mm. saying and yep. and we're basically left to just judge their voices. Obviously, I think this is a mixture of taking that um, 
our own subject discourse on mm. assumptions of, of people and, and sort of normalizing it to, we're just hearing what they're saying yeah, and hearing that testimony more than anything. And we're, we're the ones making, jumping to those conclusions. But on, but on top of that, I, I also think, I mean, there's a, there's an artistic element too, because she had such an iconic voice yeah. clearly. And to be honest, her, her physical appearance wasn't really her marketability. Like she was different looking to a conventional jazz singer. Sure. Sure. Well, even as like a child, like I, I remember the name Amy Winehouse and we were both, what, 2011, so about, mm. but what, 13, 14 when she passed away? Yeah. And um, so I remember that pretty distinctly. But the thing I knew about Amy Winehouse, more than her music, really, obviously the song Rehab and stuff, but I had to sort of remind myself what songs she had written as opposed to what she looked like. Why well, I was like, oh yeah, that's what she looks like with the hair and sort of the quite petite look before the tattoos and like i remembered that the yeah. look of her so i mean loud were... tattoos too they sure. were, they're not yeah. um conventional it's not a butterfly on, on sort of the right arm or anything like that it's very <laughs> um yeah it's, no it's more than that. It was a... i i look and but she's not a um like you know we, we were talking about in the first half of the show how mm. um how now it's so targeted these the particularly these pop stars yeah how they're targeted on their look and their look is so clean mm. like conventionally clean angelic even and mm. very contrived very constructed whereas Amy Winehouse is a perfect example of an artist who was completely unconventional and was solely you bought into mostly more than anything was how raw she was mm. from a from a from a vocal point of view but also like from the way she carried herself the fact that she didn't talk proper or anything like sure, that she yeah. was slang and she'd swear and she wouldn't really care about any like not she wasn't well managed in that sense sure um, she wasn't like publicity or interview trained or anything like that absolutely. or like the way she presents herself is very consistent yeah. throughout her entire life and and like you said compared to like those more angelic sort of visual pop artists we're used to today it's like she kind of opened the doors a lot for i think like lady gaga even talked about how amy Winehouse sort of opened the door for that and in terms of just kind of looking and behaving weird but letting the music speak for itself regardless. absolutely because her kind of and again i i watching this doc i learned not that i think a musician can gain a lot of like technical information about songwriting and music from this doco i think it's much more focused on her character but I also I found it very interesting that her type of music is kind of blues and jazz and you know her visual appearance doesn't quite lean towards that's what that. I'm saying yeah, yeah. It's, it's a subversion of expectations it's mm. it's it's us making stereotypical con like um, assumptions that we look at her and we'd probably be like ah oh, she's probably like a hip hop or or some like contemporary. Uh, like more pop culture music, you know, that were more yeah. like not, you wouldn't see. And it's like later in the, in the uh, documentary, she's performing with one of her idols in the very traditional jazz mm. number. And the polarized appearance of them is, <laughs> is remarkable. Yet, like you said, the voice does the, does the talking. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you brought that up. The, um, so that's Tony Burnett. And there is sort of like a free act, structure or through line with that connection mm. because you have him announcing i think it's the grammy win that she gets that yeah. she has over like the, the the televised thing which is two in the morning for her 
Um, and she's even just like, oh my God, dad, look, it's, look who it is. It's sort of our idol. But then part two of that is you're right. The sort of the awkward, I wouldn't even call it awkward. The only reason it's awkward is because she's quite nervous and, and yeah. worried about her own performance in that scenario. And he's quite caring and, and patient with her. The access of that mm. footage is remarkable. Oh my God. Yeah. Because we're really seeing, and I compare why I like this documentary already leagues more than something like Miss Americana. Sure. And I think it's a good documentary to compare something to this because my problems with that documentary is how contrived even this, like, the the found footage is. Like, we're we're Mm. talking about this, and I think Taylor Swift's a prime example of someone who's very cookie cutter clean as an artist not sure. saying she's bad at making music or her music's bad right but the way she presents but herself she, she's the epitome of what we're talking about this controlled artist mm. this tamed force really like her untamed is still wanted by the suits upstairs mm. you know it's these executives that we never see who are making these decisions and maneuvering in a certain way there's very little artist ownership i feel there yeah. or at least genuine artist ownership and you look at something like miss americana where it's like even the moments these moments where they're trying to make her appear more vulnerable i just don't buy into it well the where- reason you don't buy into it is because it's such a contemporary documentary of okay here's a certain amount of time where we're just going to have these cameras on taylor swift and she's gonna you know behave and perform and, and talk in front of these cameras and unlike that is so unlike everything that happens in Amy, where even though you could argue that every little bit of audio that's been taken, uh, 99% of the footage that you're watching is taken from places out of context to be compiled into this documentary. Absolutely. There's no portion where Amy Winehouse is like, I'm going to say this thing because I know I'm being recorded for a documentary about my life. Not Can't say the same for Taylor Swift in that particular documentary. And it's the same for the Billie Eilish documentary. They all have this contemporary feel, and even this one, because a lot of it is home footage that's recorded in the present tense. I was shocked by this. One of the audio pieces that Amy Winehouse talks about, she says something along the lines of, I don't think I'm ever going to become famous. Every other doco, especially the Billie Eilish one and the Taylor Swift one and all that, would have them saying, I never thought I would become famous. Past tense. And I think that's what makes this documentary so special. I just like slammed my table. Yeah. I <laughs> no, I agree, and that's a, that's a fantastic pickup because you look at, <laughs> and it's even like it's the little things. It's this, and I think we we like I said we retrospectively. By the time she's a fully grown adult, yeah, she's already too far gone. And mm-hmm. this is the thing, her the, the problems that lie like these problems we're talking about where she has like late level like later in life substance abuse problems mm-hmm. alcoholism all these things that contribute to this eventual death yeah th- they follow us through this life because th- what the documentary is trying to suggest is these problems were preventable when people have influence mm. and the reality was sure. she never really grew up because she had to grow up so quickly and it ends up being that weird sort of mix where you know, like no one stopped the bad behavior when it was able to be stopped. So when it yeah. happened, it made it very difficult. And it, it, because everyone was either monetary incentivized to look the other way yep. or that they were in the wrong position to try and make the change, like like Nick, the manager, who mm. were too close to be a manager. Right. But um, so they were never a professional placement. 
So they couldn't enact that change. And yeah. then you've looked well, at... There's that line of, you know, deciding not to put her into rehab before she was famous. And, like, sure, that's a line that's more reflective than the one I just used as an example yeah. of the I don't think I'm going to become famous present tense. But it's an interesting observation because you're right. It, it is that thing of, okay, well, now that she has passed, let's reflect back on what we could have done to avoid mm. that. And I think this docker it does a pretty good job at looking at everything from the present tense and being like, okay, this is this is how the story unfolded. And just watching a just like watching a young woman grow into fame and and knowing where the the trajectory is going to lead her, mm. you watch those earlier bits of footage and you buy into this this just this absolute normality. This this person that's been raised in a very lower socioeconomic lower mid socioeconomic situation mm. and with a with a family dynamic and and what you see when you look at that teenager is is not that far off when you saw her as a superstar sure um and i and i like that scene with um with is it is it Tony Bennett or? Uh, yeah Tony Bennett um because you see just how much of the little and that's at the back end of the documentary but you see yeah. how much of the little girl's still there yeah, the fact exactly. that she's completely, there now. you know, at that point she's going on tour, selling out to twenty, thirty thousand people, yet she's in a room with someone, and we're just watching her be an absolute mess. And she's like, she's not even being like that. Like not said, not that, a mess in like the she can't contain herself because of drug issues, no. or just a mess because like, oh my god, this is my idol. And it's not like it's not the same way. It's like if you see in those more contrived musician documentaries, they're like, "Oh, I'm with my idol," and they do a bit of teehee or a little bit of a fan guy, fan girl moment, and then sure. somehow manage to magically snap into performing. No, she's struggling to perform. She is so hypercritical of herself, yeah, because she doesn't care about the camera because she doesn't know the camera's important. No, well, and in her mind is like, "Oh, well, this is all going to get cut." Yeah. Because well, it would have got cut out of that. In fact, I don't. Even, that's just videoing them doing the yeah the performance. So all the video that's there, I you know, now that I think about it, what would that have actually been used for? It would probably would have been used for something as simple as as promotional material to promote that song sure. coming out together, in which they would have cut out all the parts in between with it where she's nervous. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's what I find truly truly fascinating when you watch something like that. Yeah, well, it goes back to and I'm praising the editing and just sort of the the, the, the monumental. Oh, it's absolutely incredible. So Chris King is the editor. Wanted to give him a shout out there because I really think a documentary like this relies, especially one where you're right, the, the, it relies on these voice clips and sort of having to make those associations with video footage to either to either reinforce what's being said or to contradict what's being said. And there were very, very few times at the docker where I felt the editing was sort of being manipulated in a way that felt artificial. I think yeah. there was a couple of times with the paparazzi was like, okay, I think that soundscape, it just sounds too loud. Like, it feels like they've sort of manipulated that in the soundscape. My um, God. This this docker needed like an epilepsy warning. <laughs> it really some did. Some of those flat. I watched this in a dark room. Right. And I was like... <laughs> like, oh, I can't handle this, yeah. No, I, no I, it probably should have, especially at the front of Netflix, if that's how you're watching it. But I think there's a couple little moments like that, like tiny little things. Or even the, um, you know, I think the first time after she's out of rehab and she's hanging out, um, you know, with a few other people. Mm. And then there's the, they're talking about those moments being snapped by paparazzi. 
And what we're getting is not only just the photos on screen, but then there's actually like they're associating the sound of the camera going off with they're punching in, they're cropping into the photos. And it's like little moments like that just to simulate the idea of like this is these are the photos being taken because it's not video. So let's manipulate the photos yeah. so it look like video. Other than that, very, very few examples. It really does feel like just a monumental amount of um, piles of of audio clips and video clips that, yeah. that Chris King just had to sort of put together in a very cohesive documentary that, like I said earlier, I think structurally is so, well, tragic because you do feel more personal with Amy or you feel her yeah. unfiltered personality shine through home videos as she's prepping the mirror for a very early performance. And then as the documentary becomes almost exclusively just TMZ footage or, you know, phone footage of a concert in 2011, it's just sad because you feel so removed from her in that sense where you've lost that that personality, probably the way that she felt like she was losing herself. Yeah. And I think a story like this, I mean, this, this the story of, you know, a big, you know, musical star, legend that, that falls... I mean, you said the 27 is what, the magical number. Yeah. Well, that there is a magical number in the first place for musicians. Like, it's a, it's a story we've seen so many times over and it's just so tragically repeated so i think a documentary like this you need to find a way to tell that story without feeling like you're just saying the same old thing and like i said i i think the removal of uh those pieced cameras Mm. is a deliberate obviously choice that allows you to really grasp uh because you're taking away all those preconceived notions of being like, oh, well, of course the father is, is completely and utterly to blame. He's the only real benefactor in this situation. And it's right. like, well, there's a mixture of that, but there's a mixture of immaturity from her friends, the yep. the the um, sort of unprofessional and, and knowing you're not qualified to be a manager, having the promoter step in as a manager despite not having any qualifications or having like a bias and really just wanting it from a monetary point of view. So the, the financial aspects affect nearly every party that's speaking sure, in one way or another. And no one is inherently clean because it's like, you know, um, the friends that get called to do help but don't reply because they're having a fight or, mm. or the dad who is blatantly, you know, who's basically the catalyst for why she doesn't go to rehab, or at least that's what's insinuated. And yeah, well, that's even in the own rehab. Yeah. I can't remember the exact line, but I'm pretty sure she says something along those lines. Of, yeah. You know, my dad said fine. I'm fine, so I'm not going to go to rehab. Yeah. Which I think is like the first time that was the, the real life um, implication. And I want to say, so, you know, because I was more interested in like the editing and the way the narrative was constructed more than just who I assumed to be at fault for this. Like you said, it's a combination of things. Yeah. I mean, the documentary does show that. I, I think didn't... it's fair. I think it's mm. pretty fair in terms of it's not villainizing one party. Sure, yeah. And yeah. I, I thought Mitch was not really in the documentary that much. Like, his, his part was played out. You see, you hear the voiceovers, you see the footage. Mm. But I, I generally didn't think, like, yeah, no, he's he's, he's not the, the sole perpetrator for this for this scenario a lot of it is sort of beyond her control just the world's intrinsic interest in her i mean that's a big part of it but since we're on this topic Mm -hmm. you know i did say at the very start of the show i wanted to ask you about that in terms of um well mitch's comments and this is the other quote obviously we we talked about the quote you said in regards Mm -hmm. to the oscar nomination that he still hates the film um or that they disown the film in general 
The other thing he says, and I quote, The film is representing me in a not very good way. There is no balance. There's nothing about the foundation. It's portraying me and Amy in not a very good light. So, you've kind of answered the question, but more directly, do you think what he's saying is BS? I do. I think mm. I think the I think the film doesn't seek to I mean what way could it paint him better, I think? I mean sure. the film the documentary depicts him as a mentor figure that's constantly a source of Amy's decision making. Mm. So why doesn't Amy go to rehab? So yeah. it's like oh, why why doesn't and if he is such an influence, which he does, and it, I think it's tough to argue when you look at archival footage of, particularly when she's escaped, you know, she's really on that last rope and she's mm. escaped to, I can't remember what, a small island town or retreat. Right. Um, and he's brought a camera crew along because he they're doing a television show about yeah. his being the father of Amy Winehouse. And it's like, she's inherently trying to get like detox from all of this. And yet this blatant sort of monetary incentive, this self aggrandizing congratulatory, uh, route is, is being taken. And, And I find that truly remarkable that you can look at that footage. That's not edited, not, Anyway, just mm. so, like his cameraman for his show films that interaction. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like you said, it's it's um, it's like it's, well, I mean, there's editing, sure, but like you're right, it's an unaltered look at the footage that his own cameraman shot. Yeah, and you know what I mean. Like, why would he pick that director? Basically, we're well, not handpick, but like I agree to it as long as this director does it, and then be shocked by the style. And like you said, it's not like there were talking heads specifically out to get him. There were comments made through, you know, not contextualized audio clips. But you're right. It's kind of, the, it's literally throwing the mirror in his face. I, and he doesn't I, like what he I says. think when he is such a, the reality of the situation is, and this is, this goes out to any family of stars that are in such a blatant front of house role, like mm. his dad is. Like, I mean, when he, she wins her, when she wins her Grammy, He's right next to her. Yeah. Like, and that's, there's no editing tricks. That's just archival footage. When he's got such a prominent front of house role and the result is she dies of an overdose or a heart attack from an overdose, mm. you, you, there, there's got to be that shoulder of blame or yeah. accountability there because it's different when you, you hear some musician stories where their parents become sort of afterthoughts and they just get caught in the the, the culture and die mm. and, and it's tragic and the parents sometimes the parents try and intervene, sometimes they don't because they come very distant and then they be but when you're such a prominent fixture in your daughter's up like, you know, you rise to fame mm. and you're there and you're a constant ambassador participating, it's yeah. It's sort of like uh you know, and I mean look, although completely fictional telling of the story of Elvis, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. Yeah, I was just thinking about that actually. Um the 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 analogue, you know, like the 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 dialogue we're discussing right now was reflective in that in that fictional depiction of that story, but Sure, but based um, in some reality. Of course. Um, and that like you said, it was more on the manager side of things, but there is the parental aspect Lack of, of it too. Yeah. Mm. 
and especially when such a, 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 a role of counsel is is there and no intervention is mean, there's no mention, there's no discussion of the mother and right. where the mother sits in, in this narrative. Mm. Um, so that's an interesting, that's an interesting uh, removal, why that, why that's the case. Yeah. Um, why she doesn't play any mention into the story at all. Well, that that's a good point because I mean, part of it is like not only is it the footage that they they accumulated and included, but what footage did they have that they decide not to include? Absolutely. And that's a conversation that's a lot harder to have because we just don't know what that is. And we're not Amy Winehouse <laughs> experts. No, I'm not. No, not well, yet. I mean that's a good thing to discuss as well. Was even just as someone who's not really that involved the uh, the museo- the museology I guess the discology if you will of Amy Winehouse the I didn't catalog. get the catalog thank you yeah. again I think this is more a dissection and exploration of her character more than her music Absolutely. there's definitely elements of her music in there y- yeah I mean especially when you know I, I bring up those musical documentaries in the first half of the show mm. yeah where like the Paul Kelly one's a biographical one that just looks at the music um, yep. the Sugar Man one's a little bit more like this where it's not directly about the music the music's a feature but mm. the music's more tied to political contexts and motivations and then the investigation angle whereas this one same sort of thing it's an exploration into a family basically unwrapping the layers of accountability surrounding a tragic death of a mm. rising artist yeah this artist that made what two albums two like two three really albums two she didn't make a lot yeah, wow. Because that was the big thing. Well, that was, was that her last one, the Back to Black? I guess that would have been. Probably, yeah, yeah at least. Because I think that's a that's a. Because that was the big the... thing, right? Mm. They implied in the documentary that she was just stifled and so sick of... Right, doing that same album, essentially. Yeah. I guess, yeah, that does make sense. Well, yeah, in terms of, like, the actual musical production side, and that's why I do think you're going to get more out of the Billie Eilish doco if you are looking for the, the process of the music writing. I think there's a lot more interesting stuff in there. The closest we get to that is when she actually does sing Back to Black and you get the vocals only. You're not getting the, the, the music and the instrumentals peppered underneath, even though it eventually comes in. So you get little hints of it there, mm-hmm. but the film, what the film's mostly doing is correlating things that she says with the song lyrics of songs she wrote around the time of her having said that. And one of the things she talks about is how she almost feels lucky because even though she's, you know, she has depression... And that many other people do, but many other people don't have the outlet that she has in music. And then they correlate that by immediately playing the song, What Is It About Men? And it's like the editor is making a decision there to correlate those words and that philosophy that she has about herself with that song that she also wrote and performed. So I think that's the closest you're going to get to the musical dissection. And speaking of that, I think there's even when she talks about that, sort of the outlet for depression or an outlet for yeah, for depression, I think it's grammatically correct. You can sort of contrast that with the discussion she has towards the end of the film where she's almost like in a threatening nature and I think she calls herself a samurai. But, you know, that's the juxtaposition between the start and the end of the documentary mm. where she says, I'm not, you know, effed up in the head because even though I have depression, I have this outlet for it. Yeah. Versus the end of the film where she's admitting to being effed up in the head. And I think that's sort of the, the transition there to sadly what ends up happening to her at age 27. It's a very sad documentary. Would you like to move to Highlight Scenes? Sure. I Would think... You... It's, tough. it's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah. For the Highlight Scenes. Um, I think for me, 
just because of the way it culminates to the scene and it sort of is like that final straw in a lot of ways is that performance or the lack of performance she does at the i think it's serbia stage that she's on or, or a stage in serbia Ooh, it's a tough one to watch isn't it's it? tough because she just doesn't perform good yeah. archival footage Oh, it's great. Well, what they're doing is they're obviously stealing a lot of the phone footage from audiences, hmm. but you're also getting the soundscape there. So you're also getting the very individual lines that random people in the crowd are yelling at her, and, you know, booing at her and telling her to get the stage and, you know, sing, sing. Like, you're getting all those individual pieces to what Amy's probably hearing is just like blurred. And I thought that was really interesting how they did that. Mm. What about you? What's your highlight scene? Um, I think it's got to be... Because there's a good mix in there, isn't there? There's a lot mm. to like about it. That Tony Bennett scene is probably a standout because what it does, yeah. and it comes just pretty much, I think, 10, 15 minutes before that, that Serbian performance. It's yeah, not, it's leading towards What it. it is is it's our final show and demonstration of pure innocence that mm. sits at the heart of every person, and particularly someone who has suffered such elongated mental illness mm. and this is littered between scenes of the paparazzi bombarding us with those yeah. bright lights and stuff it's this calm deeply personal scene in which we get to see a little bit of the music making process but most yep. importantly we get to see the humanity of both artists mm. in the scene a seasoned veteran and an idol who is so calm and patient mm. and and you got Amy, who's, you know, erratic and, and, and nervous and just so obsessed with getting it perfect yeah. that she's just talking herself out of it. And it's one of those scenes that you, you when you see such a, such a presentation of humanity and then you contrast that with 10 minutes later with what's happening on the Serbian stage, you're, you're mm. seeing someone who's completely lost control and this is one of those brief moments before going off the cliff. Mm. They get that moment of peace. It's that moment Bojax closes his eyes, right? <laughs> He's driving. Um, Accelerator's coming. Oh, goodness, yeah. Um, that's a season three ender right there. Yeah. We've talked about a lot of those today. Um, that's a really powerful scene. And and then yeah. the Tony Bennett final, like, sort of... Well, that that's the third part in his three-act structure here. You got his Grammy announcement, his performance with Amy, and then his final words after her death. Yeah. And, uh, Great rule of three. Yeah. No, nah, it's, it's a perfect through line. And, um, yeah. Nice. Amy is currently out on Netflix, but it's quick. I think it says yes. it's going to finish. Uh, September 10th, it goes down. So get onto it real quick. Otherwise, you're going to have to be paying YouTube a few bucks to rent it. Oh, is it going to YouTube, is it? I think it, well, it's already there, I'm pretty sure. Okay, cool. But uh, if you want your subscription-based option, you got till September 10 to get on Netflix. Well, speaking of subscription-based mm. options, Jake, what's the subscription platform, streaming platforms? And, <laughs> and <laughs> They call it new. stream is not subscription. Yeah, you wait. They, they will they be. They don't want to remind you that you're paying money for these things. <laughs> <laughs> Coming to Netflix, we have Love in the Villa, which is a newly single woman forced to share her Italian villa with her Cynical stranger after a double booking incident. I wonder what's going to happen there. Oh, what a cheeky cheek. Yeah, newly single woman. Yeah, that's not telegraphed at all. <laughs> <laughs> Coming to stand, we have The Shining, which, of course, we covered in episode 50 of the show. Guy Ritchie's Snatch. John, you're, you're a big fan of Snatch, yeah? I like Snatch. Yeah. I, 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 like, I like Gentlemen a little bit more, believe it or not. It's Gentlemen's really fun, though. Gentlemen's great. 
I, I enjoyed that a lot. And you got Tag as well. Did you, we saw Tag together. What am I saying? Yeah, that was an yeah. empty theater I think experience. so. Yeah, that was fun. So much fun. Uh, good stuff. Coming to Disney Plus is where you got The Patient, which is a new series uh, where therapist Steve Carell is kidnapped by his serial killer patient, played by Dom- <laughs> Domino Gleason. It's a good cast right there. That's serious? Yeah. I think, it's, it? I think it's a drama. Oh. Yeah. I was going to say, the casting could suggest it going a comedic route, because both of them can play comedic well, characters. Steve Carell, like, I saw the poster, it's like, they're very, they're definitely going for, um, oh, what the hell's the film called again? How am I forgetting this? Ex Machina sort of vibe? Okay, cool. Which, of course, the casting makes a little more sense in that regard, but you've also... I like Donald Gleeson. Oh, he's great. I want to yeah. see him more stuff. Speaking That's... of which, he's in Star Wars. Is. And this week is the new Star Wars show, episodes one and two coming out. Is it Endor, spelled with an A? No, it's uh, Andor. Andor. God, I give up. Are you going to watch this? Captain Andor. Yeah, it's from uh, Rogue oh, One. It's a Rogue One guy. Um, okay. I, I don't want to. I really don't. <laughs> it's like me with She-Hulk. I don't want to watch it, but you just will. <laughs> uh, you want to hear a line from episode two of She-Hulk that I've, I've told so many t- times to people that I've just memorized now? There's a hot girl over there. Oh, it's a hot chick. It's a hot chick over there. I'm going to go flirt with it. I'm going to go hit on it. Something to do with the word it. That's a real line from She-Hulk. Men. <laughs> Bloody men. <laughs> Just typical men. What's the family guy think? Men. We yeah. know how uh, to be friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, <laughs> and the other one. Men. We don't know what we did. <laughs> Good stuff. Family Guy can be funny sometimes. Oh, early Family Guy. True right. Guy, yeah. Good stuff. Coming to Prime, you got the new Lord of the Rings series, The Rings of Power. Are you going to watch The Rings of Power? I am. Yeah? Yeah, I haven't seen the trailer. I don't I don't watch trailers, but yeah, I watched the first episode. Sweet. It's going to be nice seeing a new Lord of the Rings. I'm really glad they've finally gone pretty cool. I think they should have really gone... Is this pre- like pre-Hobbit? This is like... This is... I think if it's the Samarillion, then it's like... Basically, the equivalent of like Adam and Eve, but Lord of the Rings. Oh, like wow. very early. It's cool. It's like a whole elves. new thing. It's just basically elves mostly. Yeah, I, I'm not 100 percent sure. I, could I can dig with the elves. Uh, or it might be just like 200 or 300 years, but I, I hope it's like first age because third yeah. age is the Lord of the Rings. Gotcha. So. I'm not gonna bother keeping up with the <laughs> those ages. It's just cool to go back to Middle Earth. Sure. Yeah. If it's and they've spent the money, Amazon yeah. spent the money. There you go. I want to get a lot of that X-ray Prime stuff, where the fun facts appear on screen. I love that. That's fantastic. Prime has the best like streaming service in terms of just like the additive content to it, because you got all that stuff. Yeah. But then like even the boys, if you scroll down on the boys' homepage, they literally have like VR 360 maps of the sets from the show. That you can like move around. It's kind of like when you you know, you're looking up houses to buy, and you got the 3D model of mm-hmm. it. Um, it's kind of, it's just so clever. Like Prime, just ahead of the game in that regard. Yeah, gotta love it. So that's coming out. Coming to binge, you got Moonfall, Wanda, Father's Day. So that's good timing right there for this weekend. Uh, Scream, couldn't tell you which one. The new one, the old one. Let's find the one there. in between. The one in between. <laughs> All the ones in between. You also got Dune. Which is oh, also nice. coming to Netflix this Friday. Very exciting. Uh, and you also got Marry Me, the Jennifer Lopez, Owen Wilson film. It's pretty new. It's coming to Binge and Prime. 
So a lot of double drops coming. Paramount Plus, you've got a bunch of stuff, including Before Midnight, which we covered in episode 158. Mm-hmm. Uh, once, which we don't even need to talk about. Once. Ooh. Once is The cemented. inaugural golden drop top winner. <laughs> this is exactly it. Which we covered in episode 26 and episode 80's There Will Be Blood. So that all drops in Paramount Plus this week as well. Paramount and finally... Sorry? Sorry. I just like There Will Be Blood. All oh, right. I thought that was like a deeper quote nah. from the movie. Yeah, fair enough. I abandoned my child. That's a good one. I've abandoned my boy. Coming to cinemas this week, we have 3,000 Years of Lonning, directed by George Miller. It sees Tilda Swinton as a lonely scholar on a trip to Istanbul who discovers a jinn, Idris Elba, who offers free wishes in exchange for his freedom. I've heard there's a wild twist in this film. Sounds sounds a bit hectic. Sounds very hectic. True Things, which sees Ruth Wilson as a young woman on the fringes of society who becomes intoxicated by a stranger who overwhelms her quiet life. It's a lot of words that mean nothing. Mm. What I still I don't know what the story is about, but I had to write it like that because that, that's what they gave me. Like that's what they gave me. DC League of Super Pets sees Dwayne Johnson and Kevin Hart reunite in animated form, as I believe the Superman and Batman like dogs. So they're like, and they have to save their owners. I can't even remember what I thought of the trailer. I saw it and I had a feeling about it. I had mm. feelings. Mm-hmm. Uh, plural, but I guess I forgot about them. So that's screening early at Hoyt. I never get actually fishy comes out for another week or so. What? You also got films like Embrace Kids, Orphan First Kill, and it's a weird mixture back to back there. I know, Embracing back to back. kids and killing orphans. Oh, well, these are all films that sort of get wider releases. Okay, so I think yeah. some of these are like coming Hoyt's and yeah, I was just like daily. Funny, it's a good combination. Funny how you put it? them together. I know. So you got those two. Embracing and... kids and killing orphans. Yeah, it's a good. <laughs> Oh god, maybe I should have worded that better. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the other, one, the other one as well is the Spider-Man No Way Home more fun stuff version, which is I think seven additional minutes for Spider-Man No Way Home. So uh, exciting! So oh, Zig's very excited. Well, oh my god! <laughs> so if you're looking forward to those bonus scenes, with is Tom- it just more Willem Dafoe? I hope back. so. Just laughing. <laughs> seven minutes of that. I'm excited. You've also got, and finally, After Ever Happy. What a name. This is the fourth entry in the Romance After franchise. I only just realized that you can compare that to the Before franchise. The After franchise. Both for Romance. One's I can tell you other. probably one is, is probably a little better than the other. <laughs> I would guess that too. Now, it's screening at Hoyt's early this week. Now, here's the kicker, Zeke. Mm-hmm. The only screening this week for this film is Wednesday the 31st. Now, it is nearly 8 p.m., Wednesday the 31st. So if you're really excited about watching this early screening, too bad. Because I'm telling you right now, it's the only reason we delayed this podcast this week. (laughs) Is to tease you with the After Ever Happy early screening. But not give you enough time to actually go and see it. So, uh, we messed with you. We messed with you hardcore. I'm sorry, Zeke. I know you were excited to go see it. No. Well, I am... You are? Totally excited. No, I just got some very exciting news, which oh. I will share with Jake off the show. Oh, all right. Um, well, now, now's a good time to uh, play the trailer for next week's film, because I want to hear this news, Zeke. You don't yes. have to tell the audience. You can just tell me. I will. I will. 
So, we're going to be moving into our film of the week. It's also a director's corner. It's been a crazy ride. I can't believe we've never done this director before. Lots to talk about. Yeah. Well, this is what, our like 38th director's corner now? This is. He wow. finally makes an appearance. Jake, who's mm. the director and what are we watching? Oh, next week in the show, we're talking about George Lucas's American Graffiti. Where were you in 62? Grab that special one and jump into your candy-colored custom or your screaming machine, cruise downtown, and catch American Graffiti. American Graffiti. Baby, what's that? It's a movie. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Go back in time. Where were you in 62? Wow, that's such great news, Zeke. I'm glad you shared it with me. But not as great as the news of the high school graduates in 1962 who spent one night cruising in the strip with their buddies before going off to college. Cruising the Strip. Did I even write that correctly? I can't even tell because I've got physical paper here. That's how in bad shape my computer is. I have to print out my True, podcast notes. But that's more authentic to our genuine greaser night out. Mm, I like it, Zeke. I like it. Have you seen American Graffiti? Yeah, once. Oh, okay. I, I saw it. Uh, first film of 2021 that I saw. Yeah. I'm, yes, gonna, I'm looking forward yes. to revisiting it this week. Um, obviously, in my current situation... George Lucas, we've been covering him a lot in school, which mm. is great. Oh, nice. Um, only a brief message of graffiti. Yeah, Mr. Morgan Hind. Mr. Morgan Hind. Mr. Media. Mr. Um, Media. <laughs> it's my website. It's That's my right, legitimate website. That is true. <laughs> it's actually a full brand. MrMedia.com? Yeah, I can't believe it hasn't been taken. It's so crazy. Weird. Yeah. And it's like, Mr. yeah, I've, I've got to develop Can I be Dr. More. Media? I'm hoping to be Dr. Media one You're day. a lot closer to Dr. Media than I am, so... I'd love to do a postgrad. And um, then I'll take Mr. Media after you've done that. I like that. I'm, like, so close <laughs> to fishing uni. I'm like, yeah, you know what? I need another year. Um, <laughs> no. Um, I, I was really, out. I was out, mate. I was out. I'm looking forward to exploring George as a non-Star Wars entity. So I'm really hoping yeah. to get this film in and then that one before. I think it's THQ... 138. Yeah. What's the... um? It's the sound. It's the logo. Yeah. The sound company, yeah. <laughs> That's his first film, yeah. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Sister of Sasha podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with American Graffiti. Well, we're going so fast, Zeke, it's like we're driving. Ah! <laughs>